Welcome to the Reform Rookie Podcast. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. And so? Worthy vicar, do we find anything here of relics? By faith man lives and is made righteous, not by what he does for himself. Be it adoration of relics, singing of masses, pilgrimages to Rome, purchase of pardon for his sins, but by faith in what God has done for him already through his son. Dr. Martin, if you leave the Christian to live only by faith, if you sweep away all good works, all these glorious things you dismiss as mere crutches, what will you put in their place? Christ. Man only needs Jesus Christ. turn in your Bibles to John chapter 14, but before you do that, I'm going to ask you to turn in your hymn book to page Roman numeral 12 at the beginning of the hymnal. Page Roman numeral 12. This is something we haven't done in a while, and it's something that I would like to do more often. I would like us all to recite the Apostles' Creed. This is one of the oldest creeds in, in Christian history and one of the foundational creeds for all the confessions and creeds that have come after it. And it's an important one that we should always be reminded of. So read along with me, if you will, the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, who our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and of the life everlasting. Amen. Now what I want to do in the future when we we read that is to follow that by singing the Gloria Patri. Now we don't know that yet, but you will learn it, and it's just a, a marvelous response to reciting the creed. Now if you'd turn in your scriptures to John chapter 14. And we'll read verses 16 to 18. John chapter 14, beginning in verse 16. Hear now the inspired word of God. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Let's pray. Father, once again, as we prepare to look into your word, we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit, that he would come in power upon this place and illuminate the words of your book to our hearts. That, Father, that we would come to understand who the Holy Spirit is and the importance of Him in our lives and the importance of worshiping the triune God. 
So, Father, we pray now that you would be pleased with our worship. Bless the preaching, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. It's amazing to look out and see how full this, uh, this place is. We are ordering new chairs, so we will have more rows and empty seats in the future. So, But meanwhile, we would ask that you would, and when you sit down in the morning, if you can scooch in and you know, leave the, the ends for people who come a little bit later. That being said, listening to you singing this morning from the room in the back, there's no doubt that the Christmas season is once again upon us. We drive through our streets and we see the houses decorated, Christmas trees being decorated all around the neighborhoods, Christmas music playing on the radio, the internet, and even in the shopping malls. Corporations are throwing their annual Christmas parties, giving out Christmas bonuses, and as Andy Williams' classic song says, it's the most wonderful time of the year. You know, that song really does sum up at least the secular side of Christmas, doesn't it? In fact, verse 3 of that song says, There'll be parties for hosting, marshmallows for toasting, and caroling out in the snow. There'll be scary ghost stories and tales of the glories of Christmases long, long ago. Scary Ghost stories. That sounds more like Halloween than Christmas, doesn't it? But we shouldn't forget Mr. Scrooge from Dickens' A Christmas Carol. Remember, he met several scary ghosts at Christmas time. And why? Because he didn't get into the Christmas spirit. We hear that phrase frequently this time of the year, don't we? Anyone who doesn't get into the spirit of Christmas is called a Scrooge. There's an expectation that people should be nicer and and more caring this time of the year. People are urged to give to charities, uh, to donate their time to worthy causes, and all to get into the Christmas spirit. Everyone talks about the Christmas spirit, but what does that really mean? For most people, the Christmas spirit is an emotional experience. With all the trimmings that accompany Christmas these days, people get caught up in the emotion of giving and even being more generous, don't they? But this thinking often bleeds over to encompass the entire spiritual realm. See, most people believe in a a spiritual realm of one sort or another. But what they believe about the spiritual realm ranges from one end of the spectrum to the other. There are those who see a demon or a ghost behind every rock and... There are those who deny spirits completely. Even in the evangelical church, we have a a wide disparity of doctrine concerning the spiritual realm. And that begins even with our doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Who is the Holy Spirit? And what role does He play in God's plan for the ages? It's unfortunate that even within the church, there are people who view the Holy Spirit as a force or a power that is to be tapped into, and that tapping into it, often for personal reasons and even personal gain. In our text for this morning, we find Jesus still comforting the disciples as He prepares for His death, His resurrection, and His ascension into heaven. And and His greatest comfort for them lies in His plan for them after He's gone. 
Remember, he begins by telling them, don't let your heart be troubled. Don't, don't be troubled that I'm leaving. And then he goes on to explain why they should not be troubled. Because first, the work he began on earth is not going to end with his ascension into heaven. Because they will continue that great work. Secondly, he says, not only will you continue the work that I began, but they will accomplish greater works than he did. And then third, they will not lose the communion and the fellowship with Jesus, though he will be in heaven and they will be on earth. Why? Because they can communicate with him in prayer. Remember that great promise that whatever you ask in my name, I will do it. So the fellowship that they enjoyed for three plus years uh, might take on a different form. But it is still there and they still have communion with Jesus. Fourth, through the means of prayer, they will be able to accomplish the mission that he sent them on. Anything that they ask in his name, and we examined what that meant, he will do it. And the overriding key to this comfort if you remember the last few sermons, was that it is all for the glory of God. This is not for personal gain. This is for the glory of God. And that God would be glorified in the Son as His followers carry on the work and actually accomplish the Great Commission. Now that is real comfort because it is guaranteed by God Himself. And then two weeks ago we saw how the, the genuine test for the disciples uh, was their love for Him demonstrated by their obedience to the, the commands that He has called them to accomplish. Now today we come to a crucial point in the comfort that Jesus is offering to His disciples. In fact, without the promise in our text for today the rest would be impossible to carry out. It would be nice thoughts. It would be inspiring, but it would be impossible. So look at the text one more time. I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper, that He may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see Him or know Him, but you know Him because He abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Now we're going to examine these three verses for a couple of weeks because there is just so much packed into them. But we need to begin with this helper, which we obviously know is the Holy Spirit. So let's begin with the question, who is the Holy Spirit? You know, the fact is most people, even Christians, cannot give a satisfactory answer to that question. Uh, I'm going to give you a quote from J.I. Packer. A number of years ago, back in the 1970s, J.I. Packer wrote a book called Knowing God. And in that book, this is what he wrote. Christian people are not in doubt as to the work that Christ did. Uh, they know that He redeemed men by His atoning death, even if they differ among themselves as to exa what exactly that is involved. But the average Christian is in a complete fog as to what the work of the Holy Spirit does. Some talk of the Spirit of Christ in the way that one would talk of the Spirit of Christmas, as a vague cultural pressure making for bonhomie and religiosity. 
Some think of the Spirit as inspiring the moral convictions of unbelievers like Gandhi or the theosophical mysticism of a Rudolf Steiner. But most, perhaps, do not think of the Holy Spirit at all and have no positive ideas of any sort about what He does. They are, for practical purposes, in the same position as the disciples whom Paul met in Ephesus. And he quotes Acts 19.2. We have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. Now that situation is a problem for the church. Knowing who the Holy Spirit is, is essential for the church to accomplish the mission that Christ has given to it. And again, remember the context of of chapter 14. The church is expected by Christ to accomplish greater things than He did. I want to remind you when we went through that text that that promise and that command was passed down from generation to generation and falls upon us. We are called to do greater works than what Jesus Christ did. Make no mistake about it. The most essential point, the giving of the Holy Spirit by the Father through, through Christ, allows the church to accomplish the promise of Christ of doing greater things. And a wrong conception of who the Holy Spirit is will have grave consequences for the church. Reuben Architori, he was a, a colleague in a, of, of D.L. Moody, And he addressed his very issue in the early 1970s. And again, he wrote this. The conception of the Holy Spirit as a divine influence or power that we are somehow to get a hold of and use leads to self-exaltation and self-sufficiency. I want you to pay very close attention to this quotation because I think he, he just nails this. One who so thinks of the Holy Spirit and who at the same time imagines that he has received the Holy Spirit, will almost inevitably be full of spiritual pride and strut about as if it belonged to some superior order of Christians. One frequently hears such a person say, I am a Holy Ghost man, or I am a Holy Ghost woman. But if we once grasp the thought that the Holy Spirit is a divine person of infinite majesty, glory, and holiness and power who in marvelous condescension has come into our hearts to make his abode there and keep us in the and, and keep us in the dust. I can think of no thought more humbling or more overwhelming than the thought that a divine person a, a, a person of divine majesty and glory dwells in my heart and is ready to use me. I believe these two men have very succinctly addressed the problem that is rampant in the church. So the answer to the question, who is the Holy Spirit? The answer is, He is God. The third person of the Trinity. He is God in every respect that the Father and the Son are God. And He is not some force or power that we tap into. He is God and as such deserves all the glory, Lord, and honor that every other person of the Trinity deserves. But this distinction has some very practical ramifications. James Montgomery Boyce, he puts it this way, if we think of the Holy Spirit as a mysterious power, our thought will continually be, how can I get more of the Holy Spirit? 
if we think of the Holy Spirit as a person, our thought will be, how can the Holy Spirit have more of me? The first thought is entirely pagan. The second is New Testament Christianity. So the first thing we must do is change the way we think about who the Holy Spirit is. There's a danger in wrong thinking about the Holy Spirit. We read this morning from Acts chapter 8. The events concerning Simon the the magician. The actions of Simon Magus should serve as a warning for those who would trifle with the work of the Holy Spirit. Simon saw the power of the Holy Spirit displayed in the miracles performed at the hands of the apostles. And he wanted that same power and authority. If you read carefully the events in Acts 8, they're very instructive for us. Simon had been a practitioner of what the Scriptures call the magic arts. From our previous study in the book of Acts, I believe, he, I believe that he meant that he was actually practicing the occult arts. He was not merely an illusionist. By the way, I love illusionists. But if you're practicing the occult arts, we have, can have no part of that. And he spread his own fame because he called himself someone great. So he hears the gospel message and professes faith. But from the text, it is clear that it was a false profession. And, and, and we know that because look at what Peter says to him. You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right with God. And then in verse 23, he says, For I see you are in the gall of bitterness and in bondage of iniquities. That's not the description of a true believer. Now, why did Peter say these things to him? Because he thought he could purchase the power of the Holy Spirit with money. Now, there are all kinds of sins involved in this thinking. But there's one underlying error that I want to address this morning. He saw the ministry of the Holy Spirit as a power that he could purchase. He never saw the Holy Spirit as a person, as God. That's the root of his error, and that led to his greed and manipulative thoughts. There are those today, some within the church, who think the work of the Holy Spirit can be purchased. Not necessarily for money, although there are some who would take money for it. But through rituals and other types of manipulation, people are encouraged to seek a second blessing of the Holy Spirit. There are those who will tell you that unless you have received this second blessing, as evidenced by the speaking in tongues or some other sign, you may not even be a true Christian. Or at least you will never have the, the power of the Holy Spirit. My friends, that is a very dangerous place to be. It is strikingly close to what Simon Magus did. And it's not simply... It's simply not what the Bible teaches. Now, we're going to touch on this in future sermons. What is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? You know, and how how does that work? But that's for future messages. The point I want to make this morning is simply this. The Holy Spirit is a person. The third person of the Trinity and must be considered as co-equal with God the Father and God the Son. And as with the other persons of the Trinity, he can be distinguished from the other two, but never separated from them. Remember, that great confession, the Lord our God 
is one. In a few moments, we're going to examine what the Scripture says about the Holy Spirit to show He's a person. But first, one example to show the contrast from Simon Magus. And again, we're going to look into the book of Acts for this contrast. Because here, we're going to turn to Acts chapter 13. And we, here we see a, a right view of the Holy Spirit. And a very familiar portion of Scripture. Acts chapter 13, this is uh, the sending out of Paul and Barnabas. I'm just going to read two verses. Verses 1 and 2. Now there were at Antioch, in the church that were there, prophets and teachers. Barnabas and Simeon, who, were, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Notice, this was at a meeting of the leaders of the early church. And while they were fasting and praying, the Holy Spirit spoke to them. The Holy Spirit directly called Barnabas and Paul to become missionaries. And these men, understanding that the Holy Spirit was God, speaking to them, they immediately obeyed. Look at verses 3 and 4. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. So our first main point is simply that the Holy Spirit is a person, one of three persons in the Godhead. And the next question we have to ask is, is this taught in the Bible? And the answer comes back a resounding yes. There are seven, I'm sorry, six proofs in Scripture that I'm going to, there are more than six, but there are six that I want to show you to prove that the Bible teaches that the Holy Spirit is a person. First, Simply this. Personality is ascribed to him in the scripture. In the text before us this morning, we see this most clearly. Look at our text again. Verses, just verses 16 and 17 of John chapter 14. And I want you to notice the personal pronouns that Jesus uses to describe the Holy Spirit. I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. That he... Notice, that's referring to the Holy Spirit. That he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth. Whom the world cannot receive, but it does not, because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. I don't know if you've ever noticed, but very frequently within the church, you hear the Holy Spirit referred to by an impersonal third-person pronoun. It. No. The Holy Spirit is a person. We should, that's not how Jesus referred to Him. We also see Jesus referred to Him as another helper. And that too is significant for several reasons because the Greek word that Jesus uses, that John elicits here, is the word parakletos. And in different versions, it's translated by various words. Comforter, counselor, advocate, helper, many different translations. They're all similar and they're all useful. 
I prefer either advocate or helper because I think they're the two best choices. Because our words comfort, comforter and counselor have taken on different meanings in our society. All right. Uh, Paracletos literally means to come alongside to make one stronger. Para means comes alongside and kletos means strength. So the role of the Holy Spirit is to come alongside and not so much comfort as to wipe away tears as it is to strengthen one for the battle. Just as Jesus was the advocate for his disciples on earth, and is now going to heaven, the Holy Spirit will now be their advocate on earth. You see, Jesus is still our advocate, but He's in heaven. And He refers to the Holy Spirit as another helper. The word another is, uh, again, the Greek word is very specific. The another means one just like the previous. There's another Greek word for replacement, which means a different replacement. This one means just like one. So what Jesus is saying is, I am sending you one just like me. Jesus is a person. So is the Holy Spirit. Second, personal actions are ascribed to the Holy Spirit in Scripture. Again, in our present text, He is described as a helper, counselor, advocate, whichever you choose. These are actions that require personality. A force or a power can't counsel you. We also see personality in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 where the Holy Spirit is said to impart gifts to the church. 1 Corinthians 12.11 But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as He wills. Notice, the Holy Spirit is the one who distributes gifts according to His will. Notice, He has a will. He is a person. Third, there's a distinction made in Scripture between the mission of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In John 15:6, we read this. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. Notice, the mission of the Holy Spirit is very specific. He will testify of Jesus Christ. We know that He is the one who inspired the writers of Scripture and that He convinces and convicts men of sin, that He prepares men for ministry. And and we're going to explore the role of the Holy Spirit in a future message. But for now, I just want you to see that He has a very distinct ministry that is distinct from the ministry of the Father and the Son. Fourth proof that He's a person. The fact that His rank and power are equal with the other two persons of the Trinity. The clearest way that this can be seen is the benedictions of Scripture. These are all given in the name of the triune God. Paul closes his second epistle to the Corinthians with this benediction. This is 2 Corinthians 13, 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Notice the distinction, but the equality. And then Jesus gives these instructions to the disciples in the Great Commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. And notice what he says, to baptize them. But how? In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Three distinct persons, co-equal, one God. Fifth proof. 
The fact that the Holy Spirit can be sinned against proves his personality. Remember the caution of Jesus to the crowds when the Pharisees accused him of casting out demons by the power of Satan? In Matthew chapter 12, verse 31, Jesus says this to warn them. Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be given people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Now, while we may speak in general terms about sinning against one another, in the strictest sense, sin is always against God. If you steal from someone, you've offended that person, but you are still sinning against God. And with words of extreme caution from Jesus, he says, sinning against the Holy Spirit is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not forgivable. And therefore, it shows that he is, in fact, a divine person. And then the sixth proof that the Holy Spirit is a person is the Holy Spirit is distinguished from his gifts. There's no question but that the Holy Spirit gives power to the people of God. He gives both authority and power to carry out the ministry that God has called each one of us to accomplish. But the Scripture is careful to distinguish between the gift and the person of the Holy Spirit. Look Once again, 1 Corinthians 12.11 But one and the same Spirit works all these things, and notice, distributing to each one individually as He wills. The gifts of the Holy Spirit are not the Holy Spirit. They are gifts that He gives. And we must always keep that, that distinction. They are distributed according to His will. These gifts are from the person and cannot be bought or received through manipulation. And that leads to our last point of the day. Not only is the Holy Spirit a person, He's God. We've already addressed this, but it bears repeating when we talked about him being another helper. You see, when Jesus promised the another helper, it is recognized that Jesus was the first. Uh, the context is undeniable that Jesus is referring to himself. And we've already shown that how that means that the other helper is just like the first one based upon the word usage. We saw this means that the Holy Spirit is a person, but it also means he is God. To help the help or the comfort that Jesus is giving could not emanate from a mere human. That would be totally inadequate for the ministry that God calls his people to. And as a pastor, I can give you firsthand, firsthand experience on this. Very frequently I'm called to give you counsel or I am called to comfort. I can help you to a certain sense. I can be an advocate for you. I can give you words of Scripture. I can do things. But I can only, there's a limit to how much I can actually help you. Every pastor will tell you there are times in ministry when words fail. When grief or tragedy comes and you come into that situation and you just pray and you wish that you had just the right words to console the person and it, there's just no words that can accomplish that. 
But the Holy Spirit can comfort in a way that no human being can. He is truly the counselor and comforter par excellence. In fact, when I counsel with people, I make sure to tell them that the only reason that I would even attempt to counsel and to help them work through their situation is because the Holy Spirit is present. In fact, I go out of my way to tell them, by the way, if you come here because you think that I have a certain expertise and I can help you, boy, are you going to be disappointed. There's one counselor in that room, and that counselor is the Holy Spirit. He is who we rely upon in any and all circumstances. And that's why when I counsel people, I say, listen, the possibility of success in this counseling session, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, is 100%. Because Christ has promised that through the power of the Holy Spirit. The probability depends upon you. And so we would expect then to see the Holy Spirit given divine attributes in the Scripture if He is God. And we do. First, the word holy is a divine attribute in itself. Of course, we are called to be holy, but we are never called to be holy in the sense of being divine. We also see omniscience ascribed to the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Apostle Paul writes, For to us God revealed them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God, for among men... Who knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the spirit of God. Omnipotence is ascribed to him. In Luke chapter 1, verse 35, the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Obviously, omnipotence, he's called the Most High. Omnipresence is ascribed to Him in Psalm 139. Where can I go from Your Spirit? Or where can I flee from Your presence? If I ascend to heaven, You are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, You are there. And those are just a few examples. Secondly, the works of God are ascribed to the Holy Spirit. We're told the Spirit of God was moving over the creation during the first week of history. We're told in Job... That the Spirit of God has made me and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. We're also told that it is the Spirit of God that brings life. In Romans 8, verse 11, But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. We also know that He is the one who caused the Word of God to be written. Second Peter one twenty one. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Third, the Holy Spirit is ranked equally with the Father and the Son. We saw this earlier in the benedictions. Baptism in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We see Him equally ranked with the two other persons of the Trinity. And then fourth, The name of God is directly applied to him on numerous occasions. 
Perhaps the best example is that of Ananias and Sapphira. Remember, they sold a piece of land and kept back the money and then lied about how much money they received for the property. And Peter nails them. He said, Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. There's no doubt that the Scripture teaches that the Holy Spirit is not some mystical power or force like the force of Star Wars. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. He is God. So by all means, I hope each of you has already started getting into the Christmas spirit. It is the most wonderful time of the year. But let us not allow the holiday season to draw us aside from our major purpose in life. To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And one way of doing that is not forgetting who God is. God is is the triune God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And while we are celebrating the incarnation of Jesus Christ, let us not forget the Holy Spirit who testifies of Him. So let me ask you then, how do we honor the Holy Spirit? I quoted J.I. Packer earlier today, and I want to quote him one last time as he asks some important questions. And I want you to listen carefully to these questions. He says this, Do we honor the Holy Spirit by recognizing and relying on His work? Or do we slight Him by ignoring it and thereby dishonor not merely the Spirit, but the Lord who sent Him? In our faith, do we acknowledge the authority of the Bible, the prophetic Old Testament and the apostolic New Testament, which He inspired? Do we read and hear it with the reverence and receptiveness that are due to the Word of God? If not, We dishonor the Holy Spirit. In our life, do we apply the authority of the Bible and live by the Bible, whatever men may say against it, recognizing that God's Word cannot be but true and that what God has said, He certainly means and will stand to? If not, we dishonor the Holy Spirit who gave us the Bible. In our witness, do we remember that the Holy Spirit alone, uh, by His witness, can authenticate our witness? And look to Him to do so and trust Him to do so and show the reality of our trust as Paul did by eschewing the gimmicks of human cleverness. If not, we dishonor the Holy Spirit. The personality and the deity of the Holy Spirit are not just doctrinal issues for theologians to discuss. They are practical doctrines that affect our everyday life. What we must do is take them off the shelf of high theology and put them into practice in our daily lives. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, I would would pray that today you would repent of your sin 
I would pray that the power of the Holy Spirit would come upon you and change that stony heart, give you a heart of flesh, that you might repent and believe. Let's pray. Father, we do bow before you and we stand in awe of you. Father, we still look at this mystery of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three in one. Yet we cry out, our Lord is one. Father, may we not ignore or dismiss any person of the Trinity. And Father, we also acknowledge that we are completely and utterly dependent upon the power of the Holy Spirit to work in us that we might accomplish the mission you have given us. So Father, we humbly bow before you. And if we have ignored the Holy Spirit, Father, we would confess that sin to you. Father, I would pray for anyone here who doesn't know you that today would be the day of salvation. May your Holy Spirit convict them of sin, that they would repent and believe. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to the Reformed Rookie Podcast, where we aim to teach Reformed theology to beginners or rookies. Be sure to look us up on the web at www.reformedrookie.com, where you will find many more learning tools and aids to help you grow in your understanding of all things Reformed. And remember, Semper Reformanda. Dr. Luther, are you prepared to retract these writings? In some, I discuss faith and good works. If I were to retract these, I should be denying accepted Christian truths. Martin Luther, you have not yet answered the question. Will you recant, or will you not? Here it is. I am bound to my beliefs by the texts of the Bible. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and I will not recant. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen.